Welcome to another episode of Settlement Nation. I am Courtney Barber and I'm joined by my co-host Chris Boer, as well as Grayson Goody, a partner and trial attorney from the Simon Law Group out of California. Now, since becoming an attorney, Grayson has obtained over $40 million in jury verdicts. Notably, he was the lead trial attorney in the Pemberley versus Strider case, where he obtained a $3.6 million verdict and was also awarded the Street Fighter of the Year Award for that case from the Consumer Attorneys of California. We're actually going to dive into that case today, which I'm super excited to hear about. Um, In addition, Grayson has also been nominated as a rising star in 2018 and 19 from Cala and 2018 and 2020 from Super Lawyers. So welcome, Grayson. Hey, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Uh, Really appreciate you guys asking me on the show. It's uh, exciting to be here. No, we're super happy to have you. And uh, you're an expert at this. For everyone who doesn't know Grayson, they have their own podcast at uh, the Justice Team. So you should definitely check that out too. So this is going to be great because it's like, I feel like there's three experts on this podcast. So I think people are going to be in for a treat. But starting off, Grayson, um, why did you want to become a lawyer? I saw that you're only sworn in seven years ago and you look very young. So give us a little bit of background on that. Yeah, you bet. You know, uh, I grew up in Wyoming and my dad is, a pu- he was a public defender in Jackson Hole, Wyoming for about 20 years. And he moved on from being a public defender to doing habeas corpus cases, which if some of our listeners don't know, those are death penalty cases. And that's Essentially, all he does now is just death penalty cases at the federal level. Um, and, and he's really practiced in Wyoming, Oklahoma, Washington, Oregon, in a lot of different states as a habeas corpus specialist. And, you know, some of my earliest memories are, uh, you know, driving around Wyoming. And if anybody's ever been to Wyoming, it's, it's pretty desolate. So there's a lot of driving involved. Uh, driving around Wyoming and him trying cases in Riverside County Courthouse or Kemmerer County Courthouse. And, um, you know, early on, I, I didn't really see myself following that path. You know, I always respected what he did and I always thought it was really, really interesting. Um, and, you know, to be honest with you, I've always watched these forensic file shows, First 48. I've loved that stuff. It's just really intriguing to me. And, um, you know, after college, I went to college in Bozeman, Montana, and, and really just kind of snowboarded for four years and, and did my best to get through it. But after that, I moved out to San Diego and I really just, you know, wanted to decompress and take some time off. Um, so I took about three years off and surfed and, and actually worked for a lawyer in San Diego. And I think, you know, knowing what my dad did then working for this attorney in San Diego really kind of inspired me and empowered me to, to really think that, Hey, you know, this is something that I can do. And even though I don't have a law degree yet, I know that I can do it well because we're, you know, very successful in this firm. Um, and so it really kind of just took going through those processes and, and, you know, being a surfer and couch surfing, you can only do that so much before, uh, you realize you probably should get a real job. And, um, you know, after that, I just decided, hey, I'm going to go to law school and I'm going to take the next three years of my life to really buckle down and focus and uh, introduce myself, network, meet as many people as I possibly could, because this is the next three years for the rest of my life. And um, it ended up being a, a really, really good decision. And I tell you, 
looking back, there's nothing else I would rather be doing with my time. And it obviously has worked out really well for you. Um, you know, as a younger attorney, and we have all types of people that listen to our show, some of them are very seasoned attorneys, you know, been in the industry 20 to 30 years, some are just starting out. But as someone who's just, you've had such great results, and you haven't been doing this for so long, what do you think are some advantages of, of being a rising star in this industry? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm 35 now, but I've been practicing for seven years. And I've been fortunate enough to get into a firm that allows me to try cases at a young age. And so, um, you know, I think I'm at 18 or 19 jury trials now. And I think, you know, one of the benefits of being young is, you know, you're just you're young and hungry. And uh, anybody who's tried a case or who's in this industry and knows what it takes to try a case all the time that's involved uh, through discovery, preparing your client, preparing exhibit binders, trial binders, knows that you have to have a lot of energy. And I think, you know, that's really the number one benefit of being young is that I'm young and hungry and I, I love what I do. I take it very seriously. Um, I love my clients. I don't want to win. I'm very, very competitive. And having that, that hunger and just being young really helps me buckle down when I absolutely need to. And then by the time you get to trial, I think there's another benefit to being young is you're viewed as the underdog. Pretty much every time I go into trial, in fact, it is every single time I go into trial, I'm the youngest attorney there. <laughs> and, you know, I, I always try to put myself in the jury's shoes, right? So when I am preparing for trial, I like to walk through it in my head and I like to think about okay, so this is mini opening. This is what the jury's going to see. And this is what they're going to hear. Put myself in the jury's shoes. And I think that there's a stereotypical attorney that they expect to show up, right? It's, it's going to be a, you know, an older guy, probably, you know, sometimes it's going to be an older lady um, in a black suit with cufflinks, a nice watch, uh, glasses, and so when they think that's what they're going to see, and then I show up and they kind of contrast, uh, you know, me versus the older guy in the room who, who may be, you know, more experienced, have some more wisdom. It's really kind of a David versus Goliath thing. And I think naturally, as people, we gravitate towards the underdog. And I like that. I like having that underdog feel at trial because I think people start rooting for me out of the gate. And as long as I don't mess anything up or lie to them, or, or I'm just not, uh, you know, cocky or, or saying things that are, they're way out in left field, I can typically gain their trust. And by the end of the case, um, you know, I usually talk to jurors who say, Hey, if I get into a wreck, I want you to be my attorney. And you contrast that with before, you know, like right when we start, I've literally overheard jurors, and my co-counsel have overheard jurors saying, who is this young kid in here trying this case? Like, how old is this guy? You know, so so it's it's a good thing to be young. Obviously, there's going to be some negatives to it. I think you have to to walk a fine line um, when you're trying cases as a young attorney, because if you get a little bit too much, you know, uh, if you're getting in witnesses faces or, or you're using your energy too much and you can't really control yourself and control your emotions, you can come off as kind of young and cocky. And, and you don't really want to be seen as the young punk because the jury will, jury will punish you for it. So 
you know, it's, it's a fine line, but um, it's been interesting to see. And, and I'll tell you, you know, talking about success, I, I'm the last one to expect uh, all these good verdicts. I, I really am. I'm the last one to expect it, but uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been awesome. So Grace, I've got a follow up to that. So we do have a lot of younger listeners that are just starting their practice. So they're probably starting to do their first trials and they're probably entering courtrooms like you are and 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 like you were, which is you're the youngest person there. You're going up against attorneys that have been doing this for 20, 30 years. Those first few trials, what 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 pieces of advice would you have for attorneys that are going through that right now? That's a good question, Chris. You know, I I was fortunate enough during law school to work for the district attorney. And if some of your listeners are still in law school, I would highly recommend taking an opportunity with the district attorney or the public defender, because those places give you um, really good insight into how to try cases, how to conduct yourself while you're trying cases. Um, But for those people who are just starting to try cases out of the gate and who are attorneys, you know, I think my biggest piece of advice is to be humble, work hard and know your case inside and out. You have to be OK with failing and you, you're going to mess up. I mean, I've said some stupid things in trial and it's not it's not like, you know, I'm not trying to be uh, I'm not an aggressive person naturally, but it's it's really just not knowing what's going to happen during a case and not being prepared for it that leads me into saying these stupid things. And you just have to be okay of getting over that and understanding that and having some humility to move on with your case when that happens. And also understand that the more you try cases, the more patterns come out and the more you get used to the issues arising in cases and how to counter those and how to react to those things. So, you know, remaining calm, having some um, uh, just being slow, acting, you know, just very, very calm is very good. Um, In fact, uh, one of my mentors, when I first started trying cases, uh, Mike Alder, one time told me, he said, look, what you need to do when you're trying a case and you're up, you're talking with people, whether it's in jury selection or closing control your emotions and you control your emotions by controlling your heart rate and you control your heart rate by controlling your breathing. So whenever I get nervous, I take three deep breaths and it's something so simple that you just kind of overlook, but by taking three deep breaths, you slow your heart rate down and you can control your emotions. And I've read, uh, I think there was a Harvard study on this a few years ago that when people can't control their emotions and they get angry, they actually lose 10 to 20 IQ points. So that just goes to show you how important it is to maintain your clarity and your emotions during trial. That's great advice. And I'm definitely stealing that three. Uh, Me too. Press, uh, <laughs> probably before every podcast. Moving forward. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you guys, even with my witnesses, um, w- whether it's my plaintiff or, or witnesses who haven't testified before in deposition or at trial, when I, when I'm preparing them, I tell them that. And I, and I say, Hey, look, you know, at the end of the prep, I'll say something like, you know, how do you feel? Are you nervous? All right. Well, like zero to 10, how nervous are you? Oh, I'm like eight. 
I'm, I'm nervous. Like what's going to happen tomorrow when I testify? And then I lead them through that, you know, three deep breaths, each one with me, just breathe with me. Each one is going to be bigger than the last one. And when they're done, I always ask them, all right, how do you feel now? And they always feel better. And it's just, it's the simplest technique to use. So yeah, please steal it. Please use it. That's great. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, in a recent episode, we had Arish Hamanpour on, and he has a real passion for integrating technology into his trials and his casework. So I wanted to ask you, as a younger attorney, I assume you're also leveraging technology. So if you wanted to speak a little bit about how you're doing that, uh, that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this is also another one of the benefits of being a younger attorney, because you know, we grew up with computers and we've, we've sort of been able to evolve as computers have evolved. And we've been really forced to, um, you know, using computers in school, undergrad, graduate school, law school. Um, so you kind of have a step up on some of the older attorneys who have difficulties. You know, they might have difficulty sending email or getting on a Zoom deposition. But no, just like Arash, you know, I love using demonstratives and I love using technology. And I'll give you a quick example. Um, you know, with COVID going on, I've been doing a lot more Zoom depositions and not just Zoom depositions of defendants or, um, you know, defense experts. But I've been, you know, noticing my clients depositions. I've been noticing all of our treating physicians depositions. And all it takes is having a conversation with this treating physician before you take the deposition to see what they have, see what kind of technology they have so that you can create demonstratives with your witnesses. You know, we as a society and we as a people nowadays have such short fuses. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to keep somebody's attention for longer than 15 seconds, you know, with smartphones, computers, all that stuff. So I love to use demonstratives with all of my witnesses and I had a deposition a few weeks ago of a neurosurgeon that I'd never deposed before. Uh, I'd never even talked to him before. But when we got into the deposition, I wanted to start talking about MRIs. And I wanted to start talking about, uh, you know, spine injuries and herniations and things like that. And so I asked him, I said, hey, you know, um, can we take a look at the MRIs? And he says, yeah, we can take a look at them. But, uh, you know, because you're doing this as a trial direct, and I always do my depositions as a trial direct in the event that witnesses become unavailable later, um, would you like me to orient the jury with what we're looking at in an MRI? And I go, all right, yeah, that's fine. And he says, okay, well, I've got this program. And he pulls up this program, which was the coolest thing in the world. It, it essentially is a human body that has the skeleton, the nerves overlaid, each one of the discs in the vertebrae. And he was able to kind of parse through that and really give a good explanation to somebody like our jurors who probably have no idea about, you know, what the human body really looks like and what vertebrae do and what discs do and what dermatomes are. And so he was able to use that. And I just kind of jumped on board and we were able to really go through that. And it's going to be a great direct for a jury because He's just teaching them about the body. And, and I think it's going to be uh, really something that they can focus on. In addition to that, I always like to do um, either animations of surgeries or illustrations of surgeries. And 
it's really important when you're doing these Zoom depositions or you know Microsoft Teams, whatever platform you're using, to get familiar with the platform. And you know, if you're using a particular court reporting company, for example, we use you know Cameron Whitney. Um, they teach you how to use these platforms, and they'll sit down with you for an hour or an hour and a half. Take that opportunity to learn how to use the platform because there's so much more that you can do with a computer in a remote deposition than you can in an in-person deposition. And understanding that, I think, will get people a lot more into these remote depositions, which save time, which save money, um, and really can be much more impactful than in-person depositions. And so, you know, to give you guys an example, I'll do, uh, you know, these medical illustrations. I'll do videos for the witness. Um, I'll have the witness uh, right on the screen for a Zoom deposition and, and talk about, you know, directions of travel. Uh, really, like I said earlier, I just, I really want to have a demonstrative for every single witness that I have. Otherwise the jury's going to get bored. So use technology to your advantage to create demonstratives so that at the end of the day, when you're in trial or you're presenting your case to a mediator, nobody's going to get bored and it's going to really paint a better picture than just words. Well, that's great. Um, let's transition to, uh, branding and marketing. Um, you're with the Simon Law Group, as Courtney mentioned, mm -hmm. and you guys have done a fantastic job. Um, we, we visit a lot of uh, law firm websites um, every day, and yours really stands out. So for it to stand out amongst the crowd in the law industry is pretty impressive. So can you talk a little bit about how you guys came up with your branding and how you market yourselves? You bet. You know, and I, I got to attribute really everything to Teresa Dieppe. She is um, the head of our marketing department. And you know, since I've been with the firm, we have never advertised. We don't advertise. We don't pay for billboards or anything like that. It's more of like a, you know, grassroots operation where we put out stuff on social media. Um, we do podcasts like y'all do. Uh, we sponsor teams. We do pro bono and charity work to try to get out in the community and, and really just increase that word of mouth. Um, but, you know, Simon Law Group, three of my partners are, are the Simons and it's uh, Brad and Bob who are twins and their little brother, Brandon. And um, they kind of grew up as Marvel comics fans, DC fans. So that has really, I think been a good building block for our brand. You know, now we have justice team, um, you know, justice team and justice headquarters are, are a couple different businesses that we have. Um, and, and, and the Marvel and DC stuff has really sort of seeped into the Simon Law Group and the Justice Headquarters brand. And in fact, in our offices, we have like big posters of Marvel, uh, you know, like Superman and Hulk in every single office. And I think it just makes it fun. You know, I think I think at the end of the day, if you're on social media, if you're, um, you know, you're not advertising and you can even do it when you're advertising is, you know, keep it fun, keep it. Uh, you know, down to earth, keep it relaxed, you know, try to try to really tell your story with your social media and with your advertising. Um, and, and the Simon Law Group is a family firm. And I think that we really put that out there. And, you know, like I said, Brad, Bob and Brandon are the brothers. They also have their two sisters working for us. 
They also have uh, Big Bob, who's Bob's dad, who is a UPS driver for 40 years. He works for us. His wife, Mary, uh, their mom, Linda, works for us. So it's really a family business. And I think that they've really been able to push that through to social media so that people not only, you know, want to give us their cases, but they want to work with us and, and go have fun and go sit down and have a whiskey, you know, after a long, hard day. Um, so, you know, Hey, at the end of the day, we have fun, we eat, we drink, we drink whiskey, you know, so what's not to like. Exactly. I mean, you had us at having a drink after a long, hard day. Um, it sounds great. And just on that note of Marvel, do you have a favorite, do you have your own Marvel poster in your office? And if so, who is your, who's your go-to Marvel person? Yeah, good question. So Hulk and Superman and Batman were already taken. So I am the silver surfer. And oh, very cool. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, I, I love surfing. I, um, you know, I've got eight boards in my, in my, uh, garage. I go out as much as possible. In fact, I would have gone out today, but I'm dedicated and I'm doing the settlement nation podcast. So there we go. No Perfect. surfing today, <laughs> even though the swell is up, but, uh, yeah, the, the uh, silver surfer is definitely my character. We appreciate That's the cool. sacrifice. <laughs> Any, exactly. Anytime guys, anytime. Um, so something, Grayson, that we talk about with each of our guests, we really like to dive down into one of their memorable cases in their career so far and break it down so that they can sort of share some words of wisdom and advice to other attorneys. You did mention when we spoke earlier about this Pembley versus Estrada case, where you also got the uh, Street Fighter of the Year award. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how that came to fruition and what you had to do to bring that case right through to a verdict? Yeah, I'm happy to tell you a little bit about it. You know, this was a case and man, this was back in 2016, I think is when when we eventually tried it. But it came across our desk about a month before trial. And, you know, this is pretty typical for our firm. We usually get cases anywhere from, you know, two weeks to a couple months before trial And it's usually, you know, an attorney or firm who knows it's a big case and it's just like, look, I wouldn't do it justice or I need help. I I need to to try a case with you. This particular case had been in the hands of another attorney for two and a half years. He had done a relatively good job with discovery. And at the end of the day, there was a $300,000 offer on the table But the problem was David Pebley, who was the plaintiff in the case, his medical bills were about 300. And the prior attorney wanted him to settle. So, you know, Dave had begun reaching out to some attorneys in the community. Um, He went through a couple who said, look, you know, there's just too much to be done on this case in too little time. Uh, And to give you an idea about what needed to be done, um, there was, I think, seven experts per side. And none of the expert depositions had been taken. So, you know, I take a look at the case and, it, and it's pretty straightforward. Um, I just know that there's a lot of work to be in, you know, put into it over the next month. And I met with Dave. Uh, Dave Pebley is a, a really just the nicest guy in the world. I met him at his at his uh, at his office and he, he just kept telling me stories about his dad. You know, he just kept saying, oh, well, dad says this and dad says that. And it, um, you know, it really kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, one of my uncles, my favorite uncle. And uh, I loved him. And, and I said, all right, look, 
you know, let's, let's take this case on, let's go, let's go to bat with you. So we jump into the case. Um, I go take, you know, 12, 13, 14 expert depositions over a month. And, um, you know, our office is in Hermosa beach, California, but the, you know, the trial was up in Ventura. So, you know, about an hour and a half away. And so I'm driving up and back and I'm doing, doing all these depositions. And I remember, uh, you know, the judge, when we first came in said, Oh, I'm, you know, you guys probably want a trial continuance now, huh? I go, no, you know, let's, let's try the case. Let's try the case. And so, um, we get to trial and the defense attorney is a guy, he's an older guy up in, in Ventura, you know, nice enough guy, but this kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. Um, I think he, he was a little upset. We came in the case number one, uh, cause he thought he was going to settle it for 300. And, you know, once we came in our, I think our demand was like 900 or a million or something. And, uh, so he thought he was going to settle it. He was a little upset with me. And then, you know, I think he underestimated me too. And I, and that's a benefit of being a young attorney. You're going to have people who underestimate you all the time. So that's what makes it much more important to, you know, just get prepared for trial. And, and by this time, you know, I had probably tried six or seven cases, but I was always second chair. I was never first chair before Pebley. So, you know, Bob says, uh, you know what, why don't you just go try this case? You'll be first chair. It's your, it's your trial. Um, take somebody with you though, to get your back. And so we try, we try cases in pairs and, um, I went to law school with, uh, you know, one of my best friends in the world. And, and by the way, you know, there's four or five of us who went to law school together who work at Simon Law Group. But uh, I chose him to, to come up and try the case with me. And, you know, we were study buddies. We were on the same basketball team. And we always talked about trying cases together. And so this was, uh, you know, this was a case of many firsts for me. You know, it was the first time I got to pick a jury. It was the first time I got to cross-examine an accident reconstruction expert. First time I got to do a full closing and rebuttal. And so, you know, we went up there and, and to tell you a little bit about what happened, let me just, let me just step back and tell you about what happened in the case. So Dave and his wife, Jolene owned a RV and they would go, you know, they're from the Southern Los Angeles area and they would take this RV up to Santa Barbara, Ventura. And, you know, they would, they camp out for the weekend. So they were with a couple of their friends and they went up to Ventura for the weekend and they were on their way back and they were driving on a two lane freeway with a big center median in, in the middle. And they're driving in the right hand lane and Jolene is behind the wheel and she got a flat tire. So they pull over to the side of the road and there's an exit pretty close to them, but they're like, yeah, we just don't, you know, we don't want to, um, you know, mess up the rim. So they pull over to the side of the road and they realize, hey, we can't get all the way over. The shoulder wasn't big enough for them. So they fire up the RV and they decide, okay, let's let's go down to the next exit. And so they start to kind of creep along as you do when you have a flat tire. And Dave is not sitting in his seat. He's not seat, seat belted. In fact, he's up and he's walking around the RV, which in California... Uh, I think it's illegal. You have to be seat belted. So he's up, he's walking around and Jolene looks in her rearview mirror and she sees this big, big 
trash truck just bearing down on them. And she realizes at the last second that it's going to hit him. And so she screams to Dave, it's going to hit us. And he tries to kind of run over to his seat and sit down. But before he sits down, they get hit and they get hit really, really hard. I mean, it's a 40,000 pound trash truck that hits them. And it starts this fire in the RV. Dave gets knocked unconscious um, and eventually wakes up. He's able to get out. Luckily, nobody was killed, but he gets out. And then his injuries were, I think he had a a two level cervical fusion. Um, And then he had knocked loose a couple teeth when he was knocked unconscious. There was no traumatic brain injury claim. That had resolved. He had a concussion. So really it came down to, hey, this guy's got a cervical fusion. um, And there were a ton of issues in the case, a ton of issues. Um, Number one uh, is the seatbelt issue. You know, they went, the defense went really hard on the seatbelt issue, saying that he should have been belted. If he was belted, you know, none of this would happen. Number two, the defense concocted this theory that, their driver of the trash truck uh, had also sustained a blowout. So he couldn't control his trash truck and he hit Dave and Jolene Pebbly. So there was an emergency instruction that the judge actually read at the end of the case. That's the second issue. So we had tire experts, of course. The third issue was that Dave had Kaiser Health Insurance. And instead of treating through his Kaiser health insurance, he treated on a lien because the Kaiser doctor he initially saw, he just, he just wasn't very jazzed on. He didn't really like him, didn't feel like he was in the best care. And so he treated on a lien. Now I I know you guys, uh, you guys, your listeners are from probably all over the country. um, But in California specifically, there never really was a law as to whether the defense in a civil trial can argue that you should have used your insurance as opposed to a lien. And this is back in the day when, you know, some judges would allow that in, some judges would say, no, we're talking about insurance. And so this really became the biggest fight in the case because the defense had a billing expert. They had their guys all saying, Hey, these are what the insurance rates are going to be. And these are what he should have paid at pennies on the dollar. And he failed to mitigate his damages. So we had a lot of battles in motions in limine. Um, if our listeners don't know, motions in limine are the motions at the beginning of trial that you try to exclude evidence with. So we were trying to exclude mention of insurance. We were trying to preclude the defense from arguing that he should have used his insurance to mitigate his damages. And, um, you know, harping back to to some of the positives and negatives of being a young attorney, um, I think one of the negatives really is that judges give older attorneys deference. You know, you have judges who have been practicing for 20, 30, 40 years who've worked really hard to become judges and maybe they've tried a handful of cases, um, but they are in a similar position as the defense attorney is. So oftentimes they will defer to the defense attorney. But this is kind of a funny story about motions and eliminate. This was back when, you know, Bob Simon is like my number one mentor at the Simon Law Group. And I've tried a lot of cases with him. I kind of have a similar style as him. 
you know, just very relaxed. And when we started in motions in Lemonade, um, I think the judge thought I was Bob. And, <laughs> and, and at this time, you know, Bob had one trial of the year in like San Diego, San Francisco, like all these different locations. And so he was, he was known, you know, and I'm just some punk kid coming to try this case up in Ventura. And the judge is probably like, this kid's going to get the fence. Right. But I, you know, we, we go through these motions in limine and I eventually get the rulings that we wanted. And he like, the judge sided with us on all the big ones, right. On all the insurance ones, he sided with us. And uh, I remember like very distinctly at the end of motions in limine, um, when he lists out the rulings, he looks at me and he goes, is that okay, Mr. Simon? Like, He's basically saying, are you okay with that, Mr. Simon? And I, and you're like, yes, <laughs> exactly. I'm like, I'm like, yes. And you can keep calling me Mr. Simon if you're going to rule for me. But no, I, I think I, I think I kind of pulled one over on the judge there because he thought I was Bob Simon. And I've never, I tell you, I've never won as many motions in limine as I did on the Pebbly case. So, so that was pretty funny, but you know, we go through the judge rules for us on all that stuff. Um, there's some things that he gives the defense, of course, but, uh, we go through the trial and it's a three week trial, um, really go through everything. And, and I remember as the trial was coming to a close, I had a good feeling. Uh, I, I thought we did well, uh, you know, as a plaintiff's attorney, I think you have to win every day in trial and you have to try a near perfect case if you want to get a good verdict. So it's, it's the night before closing argument. And it was a mil, I remember it was a million dollar policy insurance policy that was open. You know, we, we had no doubts that it was an open policy and I really wanted to protect Dave and Jolene in the event we got a defense verdict or we got a bad verdict. I, you know, I, I didn't think that we were going to get a multi-million dollar verdict, but I wanted to protect them. And so I reached out to, the adjuster on the other side and the adjuster had been in and out of trial. She kind of, you know, was watching things and I, I had a conversation with her and this goes back to, you know, being underestimated. I said, look, you know, I, I think we picked a great jury. I think we have a lot of very caring people on our jury. I think we've, we've really won every, every day at trial and tomorrow I'm going to go in there and I'm going to ask for about 4 million bucks and I think they're going to give me one or two. I really do. Uh, at least I think, you know, I'm very confident in this. And the adjuster quite literally laughed at me. And she said, I think the complete opposite. I think you're going to get defensed and I'm willing to offer you a hundred thousand. So, you know, of course I said, you know, basically go F yourself hung up the phone and I'm looking at savvy. I remember we were in the car and we had just gotten to like a wing joint, you know, we we're going to go have a couple beers and, and just kind of decompress before closing the next day. And I looked, I looked at my, my co-counsel and I go, dude, are we missing something? Like, what are we missing here? And we spent the rest of the night just kind of thinking about like, what is it we're missing? And after going through my closing, my PowerPoint, making sure that was all, you know, up to par, I realized, look, we're not missing anything. We just have to uh, really just tie a bow on this case and show this jury everything that's happened. So the next day I come in and we start giving our closing arguments in the morning. It was first thing in the morning. And, and I remember 
when I, when I get done with my initial closing, and this is not the rebuttal, I usually go into a story and, and I try to tell a story to, you know, get the jury to be, to, to stir their emotions up a little bit. And I always tell this story about a guy with a bag and sometimes I'll change it. Sometimes I'll change it depending on the facts of the case, but it's, it's typically, it typically goes like this. Um, uh, you know, I want to take you back to June 6th of 2015. And I want you to envision the inside of Dave and Jolene's RV where they're driving down the road and they get a flat tire. And Jolene says, Dave, I think we got a flat tire. And she pulls over and Dave says, oh, I think you do too, honey. And, and he puts down the stairs to the RV and he goes back and he checks and he says, yeah, you got a flat tire. And so he runs back in and, and he's standing there with Jolene as she's looking in the rearview mirror and she realizes that there's a trash truck bearing down on her. And in that moment, time stops. It stops for everybody except for Dave. And Dave looks in the other rearview mirror and he sees a man approaching the RV. And the man knocks on the RV door and Dave walks up to it and he opens it. And the man says, you must be Dave. And Dave goes, well, yeah, yeah, I am. I am Dave. Can I help you? Who are you? And the man is dressed in black and he's got a black hat on. And Dave can't really see his face, but Dave has a bad feeling about him. And the man says, no, no, you, you don't need to help me. Um, I've actually got something for you. And he takes a bag and he throws it into the RV. And Dave, Dave takes a look at the bag and he unzips it. Zip. And in the bag is $4 million. And Dave says to the man, he says, well, hold on a second. What did I do to deserve this? I, I don't want this money. And the man says, it's not what you did do, but it's what you will do. Because in about two seconds, you're going to be hit at 40 miles an hour by a 40,000 pound trash truck. You'll be knocked unconscious. You'll lose some of your teeth. And over the next three years, you're going to have treatments and surgeries. They're going to cut into your spine. And over the next 30 years, you're going to have chronic low back pain for the rest of your life every single day. Your holidays will not be spent with family. They'll be spent with doctors. You'll have two more spine surgeries and you'll hope that you survive. And I usually go through the entire kind of timeline that he's going to go through. And then Dave says, you know what? Screw that. I don't want your money. And he throws it back out at the guy. But that guy in the black, he says, you don't have a choice. Just like the defense in this case says, you don't have a choice. And he throws the money back in. And in that moment, time starts again. And they're crushed by this trash truck at 40 miles an hour. And I remember when I told that story in the closing that the court reporter 
the court reporter actually started crying. And when I was done, I looked back in the back of the courtroom and the adjuster was back there. And she looked like she saw a ghost because she didn't expect that. And she didn't expect it to be as moving as it was so that our court reporter was crying. And I think some of the jurors were tearing up too. And I think she knew in that moment that this doesn't look like it's going to be very good. And she looked at me in the eyes and she walked right out of the back of the courtroom. So we finish up, defense finishes their closing. I do my rebuttal. And I think total we asked for right around 4 million. And at the end of the case, you know, typically you shake hands with the defense, you know, judge says, Hey, you know, you guys go relax. We'll let you know if there's a verdict. Um, and as a plaintiff's attorney, typically you want the verdict to come in about a day, maybe two days, get those people back there, taking their time, thinking about big numbers and, and writing down big numbers. So anyway, the judge excuses us. We give our cell phone to the bailiff and we start unloading our boxes, right? So we take our, all our trial boxes, putting them on our carriers, taking them out to the truck and about 25 minutes later, as we are unloading our boxes into the truck, I get a call and I, I open up my phone and I'm like, Oh shit, it's the bailiff. And I, so I answer it and, um, the bailiff goes, uh, Mr. Goody. Yeah. We have a verdict. And I'm like, Oh no, I look at savvy and I'm like, Oh boy, we got a verdict. And so I, I hang up, I go back in and usually quick verdicts mean defense verdicts. And and by the way, this was just, this was hard fought. They were all in that this was Dave's fault. He didn't have a seatbelt on number one. Number two, it was Jolene's fault. She didn't pull over far enough. Uh, Number three, they had a blowout on their truck. Um, So we, we were just terrified. You know, we thought it was a defense verdict. I remember going back in and I'm sweating. I'm sitting at council table. I'm texting Bob because this was literally my first case as a first year trial attorney. And I had put so much into it and I'm like, dude, you guys, I'm so sorry. You know, it, it, it doesn't look good. And they're like, they're like, don't worry, dude. Like we can appeal, we can appeal. It's all good. And the jury walks in. And if anybody's ever tried a case, if the jury walks in and they're looking at you smiling, you know, it's, you know, it's good. And so the moment the jury walks in, the guy who I thought was going to be our four person, uh, is smiling at me and he is the four person ends up being the four person and they read the verdict and it was everything, basically everything we asked for, except for they decreased the future pain and suffering by like a couple hundred thousand bucks. Um, and so at the end of the day, I think it was 3.644 million unanimous decision, no comparative on either Dave or Jolene. So we won on liability, 100% unanimous, and then damages, 100% unanimous on damages. Um, and shit, I'll tell you, I was I was so excited, and it was just, you know, talk about being blessed to take a case like that to trial with one of your best friends and get a good verdict on the first go. Um, it's just it, such a blessing, and it's really led me to a lot more opportunities. It's really led me to a lot more opportunities. And, um, 
did you guys want to talk about the Street Fighter of the Year award and kind of how that materialized too? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, to give you an idea about this defense at Pebbly, you know, they just, they didn't like us. They didn't like the verdict, of course. They didn't expect it. And so, so what they did was they appealed the verdict and in the appellate papers, they said they're not interested in mediation. So, you know, for the next two and a half years, we're battling this thing out in the appellate courts. And our, our appeals attorney was Jeff Ehrlich, who, you know, if you haven't heard of him or used him for an appeal, he's, you know, one of the best, uh, if not the best, at least in California. Um, we hired him to do the appeal. And, and by the way, if anybody wants to email me and get any of the trial transcripts, motions in limine, um, appellate arguments, um, the appellate briefs, anything like that, I'm happy to provide that especially if you're in a state where the law is a little bit undecided on this issue um, that I'm going to about to tell you uh, the defense appealed. And the basis of their appeal was that Dave Pebley had Kaiser health insurance and didn't use it. And so, you know, their big argument was, you know, look, if you have health insurance and you weren't in a wreck, you'd probably treat for your health insurance. Right? So, by getting into a wreck and treating on a lien, that means you're artificially inflating your damages so that you can get a bigger jury verdict or you can get a bigger award at trial or you can get a bigger settlement. And so they had this argument that really they had put, you know, just all the way through trial that, you know, they, they put into the appellate briefs and that was a big issue. And it was a, it was really pressure filled issue because if, if we had been ruled, if the court ruled against us, you know, that might mean that in every case moving forward, if you have health insurance, you got to, you know, you really got to treat through your health insurance instead of on a lien. And it really decreases damages. And not only that, it limits the universe that your, your client gets to treat with, you know, they, they're stuck with Kaiser doctors as opposed to going to the best guys in the world who do, you know, who are neurosurgeons and only do spine stuff. So it was a huge issue for us. And I remembered in trial arguing that medical decisions are a fundamental, uh, fundamental right. So you have a substantive due process right to make them. And that made it made its way into, you know, Jeff's briefs on the case. And, uh, I actually remember the day we got the opinion, I had this other case, this freaking crazy case where this girl fell out of a window when she was drunk. And like, it was totally the bane of my existence at the time. <laughs> and, and I was talking with the defense attorney and um, one of our other trial attorneys at the time, Tom Fair, who, by the way, is also just an amazing mentor for me. Uh, he, he called me. And I was on the line, so I couldn't answer. I was like, no. And then he called me and called me and called me. And I'm like, dude, what do you want? And I go, all right, look, defense attorney, hold on a second. So I, so I switch over to Tom and he's like losing his mind. And he goes, Pebbly, dude, Pebbly decision came out and it's published. You got to get down to the bar. Come down to the bar. Come down to the bar. And I'm like, what? What? Dude, I don't even understand you, but I'm coming down. Which bar are you at? And so I switch over to the defense attorney. And I'm like, look, I got to go. Like, we got to talk about this later hang up and I run down to her, uh, to the Hermosa pier. And I think we went to like Sharky's or something like that, which, you know, if you've been down to the Hermosa pier, it's awesome. Sharky's is a good spot. A lot of young people, a lot of, you know, tomfoolery going on. But anyway, 
So we go to Sharkey's and um, the, the appellate court made its decision and published the decision. And essentially what the decision says is everything we said in the trial court. Uh, number one, insurance is a collateral source. You can't talk about it, period. It's going to confuse the jury. It's going to lead, in, lead into like way too much time wasted. That was already kind of the law, but it wasn't specific to liens and health insurance. Number two, the, um, the appellate court uh, concluded that the defense in one of these personal injury cases cannot claim that a plaintiff failed to mitigate their damages by treating on a lien as opposed to their insurance, which is absolutely massive for the plaintiff's bar and all civil cases in California. Because once that case came down, we get to use that citation in every single trial, every trial. And every time we're litigating a case, we talk about Pebbly. So how, how the, um, the Street Fighter of the Year Award came around is, you know, CAOC, which I'm a board member of Consumer Attorneys of California, um, you know, really, really a good organization, great organization. They're very involved in legislation. They're very involved in, you know, grassroots political stuff that's really, you know, you're trying to push through bills that are going to help victims, uh, you know, our clients who are victims. And so the Street Fighter of the Year Award, I think it's, the, the definition of it is it's given to a small firm practitioner who achieves a significant result in California that's that affects, you know, a good portion of attorneys and, uh, you know, law firms in California. So um, we were nominated for that award. Actually, myself, Jeff and Sevi, uh, Sevi Fisher, who tried the case with me, were nominated for that award. And ended up winning it. And I think, you know, one of the big reasons we ended up winning it is because, uh, you know, Pebbly versus Estrada, Pebbly versus Santa Clara Organics is quite literally cited in every single motion in limine for every single civil trial in California moving forward. It is ironclad precedent that you use when the defense is trying to say your client should have treated it through insurance. And for all those other people who are tr who are in these other states that don't have this law, again, feel free to reach out to me because it's important that you have this. And the the Court of Appeals um, was very specific as to why they came down the way that they did. It's that plaintiffs in these civil cases are victims, and you can't have the person, the tortfeasor, the person who hurt you, dictate your medical care. That's just, it, it goes, it goes beyond anything, any fairness at all. And it's actually much more fair to have these victims choose any doctor that they want. And there's reasons within the opinion that I won't go into, you know, there's probably 10 or 15 reasons that the appellate court says, no, dude, you have to be able to choose any doctor you want. It's a fundamental substantive due process. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I'll tell you, just winning the case. No, yeah, even even less than that. Just being able to try the case with like one of my best friends from law school would have been enough. But you know, quite honestly, it blossomed into what it has become—a great verdict. Um, you know, a great 
relationship that I've started with Jeff Ehrlich as an appellate attorney, um, a great opinion for all of Californians and, and all, all of victims and all of our clients throughout California. So like, I'm just blessed to have tried it, but to become what it's been and, you know, get the street fighter year of the year award. Uh, it was, it was truly amazing. I, I honestly will remember this case for the rest of my life. Grayson, uh, Thank you for that vivid and moving uh, recap of the case. I don't think we've had an attorney yet that's essentially recreated their closing on our podcast. And uh, I felt like I was in the courtroom when you were going through that. So I really appreciate that. And then the the follow-up on the precedent that was set, um, I think that's going to be really helpful for um, our listeners, maybe in other states that can take that and maybe try to establish the, that precedent in, in the states that they're practicing. Yeah, thanks, um, Chris. Thanks. Yeah. So we, we really just have one, one last question for you as we wrap up, which is a question we ask every guest. Uh, and you may have covered it earlier, but I'm going to let you uh, decide. We, uh, we always ask, if you were uh, able to give advice to yourself five or 10 years ago um, when you were practicing, what would your current self tell that person? Good question. Uh, you know, if I was to give myself advice five, 10 years ago, you know, probably right when I first started practicing, it would be to find balance. Um, you know, it took me a long time to realize that there's always going to be more work. You're never going to get through with the things that you need to get through. You're never going to be done with your work. Do your best to find balance. Um, I always felt like I had to be working and, you know, granted, when you are a young attorney, you got to earn your keep, you got to, um, you know, cut your teeth and, and earn a spot in the firm. But balance is so important. Keeping up with the things that uh, make you who you are, whether it's surfing or reading or, or doing puzzles or painting is, is so important because if you fully engulf yourself in an attorney lifestyle, you almost lose who you used to be and you can be so much more effective representing your clients when you're happy with your own life than just working all the time. And, and I see that so much with young attorneys, uh, you know, I'm tired. I'm working till 10 at night. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Try not to do that. Try to find that balance. Try to do the things that you love to do and continue being yourself because you can be yourself and be an attorney and be happy doing it. This is one of the best ways to make a living. It's one of the best ways to help people. And if you just make sure you're happy while doing it, it's going to make the you know the entire difference in the world. Well, that's wonderful advice. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. I, I know Courtney is, uh, is also very thankful. I'll speak for her. Um, <laughs> do you want to uh, just give our listeners a, a real uh, quick uh, way of getting in touch with you if they want to reach out for, for any uh, advice or, or other engagements? Yeah, you bet. Um, my email is my first name, Grayson, G-R-E-Y-S-O-N at justiceteam.com. All lower cases, no spaces. So Grayson at justiceteam.com. Dot com. Feel free to shoot me an email. Um, you know, I, I'm very responsive with my emails. If anybody needs anything, I'm happy to send stuff over. We do our best to help the lawyer community, whether it's here in California or elsewhere. 
with motions and lemon a uh, really anything that you guys need. I'm happy to send it over. No quid pro quo. Thank you so much. I think this is uh, maybe our best episode. If not, it's right. It's right there. I really appreciate you coming on um, for all of our listeners. If you could uh, like, and subscribe uh, to the podcast, uh, it'll help us with searchability and, and Apple. We are, we are creeping up the list and threatening some of the big podcasts and uh, we, we appreciate it. We uh, we're, Far behind the Justice Team podcast, but maybe we'll see you. <laughs> maybe we'll see you up there soon. So thanks again. Well, hey, Courtney, Chris, thank you so much for having me on here. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Grayson.